troopers, I just received new orders. Our superiors say the war is canceled. We can all go home. Bison is getting paid off for his crimes. And our friends who have died here will have died for nothing. But we can all go home. Meanwhile, ideals like peace, freedom, and justice, they get packed up. But we can all go home. Well, I'm not going home. I'm going to get on my boat, and I'm going up river, and I'm going to kick that son of a bitch bison's ass so hard that the next bison wannabe is going to feel it. Now, who wants to go home, and who wants to go with me? Hi, welcome to To the 90s and Beyond. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996. You can read all of my written work at that website, Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the link to my other podcasts that I do, similar to this one, but we stick mostly to films of the 1980s, and that's called Around the World in 80s Movies. Find the link at quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into a new kind of series for this. We just did the Mortal Kombat series from the 90s all the way up till today. Today I'm going to be getting back to another video game, Fighter, that spawned its own movie, actually a few movies, but only one from this particular blockbuster did emerge, never had a theatrical sequel anyway. It's called Street Fighter and it came out just a year before Mortal Kombat in 1994. Street Fighter is a PG-13 release. It does have violence and some language. The runtime is an hour and 41 minutes. The main stars are Jean-Claude Van Damme and Raul Julia, with supporting roles going to Ming-Na Wen, Wes Studi, Damien Chapa, Byron Mann, Kylie Minogue, Simon Callow, Roshan Seth, Grandel Bush, and a whole bunch more. It's It's a big ensemble cast. The director and the screenwriter for Street Fighter is Steven E. D'Souza. Now, if you're a video game aficionado, obviously you're going to need no introduction to the Street Fighter name. This is one of the most popular game franchises of all time, and that's primarily due to the release in the early 1990s of Street Fighter II into arcades. And then it did really well shortly afterward on the Super NES as well as the Sega Genesis. And the game proved so popular because, well, even the most casual gamer could button mash their way to victory against an equally skilled opponent in the arcade or the CPU. And sensing a merchandising sensation, the game's manufacturer, Capcom, then Capcom was the third largest video game company in the world behind Nintendo and Sega, They hired a licensing director. They were going to market the game and its character likenesses worldwide into such things as comic books and trading cards, bedding, towels, you name it. Even Fruit of the Loom Street Fighter underwear came out. In 1993, Capcom signed a a big deal with Hasbro to supplement Hasbro's flagging G.I. Joe toy line with Street Fighter characters. So the next logical step, if they wanted to gain new fans, though, was to expand their fan base by making a movie. So they worked through their 
American subsidiary Silicon Valley's Capcom USA, they started lobbying Hollywood Studios. They were willing to fund at least half of what they considered to be an estimated $15 million budget to produce a live-action adaptation of Street Fighter. However, most studios were pretty uninterested. The failure of Super Mario Brothers did not bode well for further video game adaptations at that time. Now, Capcom president Kenzo Sujimoto, he was visiting Los Angeles. He was there with other executives from Capcom, all the way from Japan. They were meeting all the interested parties that they could to try to back their movie financially. Film producer Edward R. Pressman, his family fortune came from the toy industry. He was still skeptical, but after his attempt at a big screen Barbie musical collapsed, Pressman entertained Street Fighter. This was a time when video games were really kind of taking over a lot of the toy market. About 60% of the market was sales of video games. So Pressman immediately, he got on the phone, he called anybody he could who might give him a lead in finding an action movie screenwriter who was familiar with video games. His producer friend, Sasha Harari, he was also friends with screenwriter Stephen E. D'Souza, and he recommended him because D'Souza was known for action blockbusters like Die Hard and 48 Hours. And D'Souza happened to be, at that time, working with Capcom on another arcade game, a version of Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, which was an animated TV show that D'Souza had been writing and directing for CBS, adapting Mark Schultz's comic book, Xenozoic Tales. Now, D'Souza happened to be very familiar with Street Fighter. In fact, he paid 20 bucks pretty much every Saturday at the arcade to have his son whoop his ass at it. And he knew that his son, David, would be blown away if his dad made the Street Fighter movie. I mean, this was something that would completely wow his kids. So he agreed to script, but he wanted to also direct. And this would be pretty much his first big directorial effort. He had experience, though, directing before. He kind of had a a small film nobody had seen, as well as directing and producing television shows. And D'Souza, he knew how to handle, because of his productions, budgeting, staffing, casting, you name any kind of production problems, he had done it, at least on the TV scale. So Pressman agreed D'Souza could direct, but they needed to get the job first, and D'Souza would have to pitch to Capcom's brass his story idea within the next day or two before they headed back to Japan. Now, Capcom overnighted some reading material to D'Souza containing background information on the Street Fighter game and all of its characters. There was also some preliminary film concept material, a manual that was included that was written in Japanese, but it contained a lot of illustrations. And one concept drawing that D'Souza saw depicted General Bison, the main baddie from the Street Fighter game, as a third world dictator with this arsenal of nuclear missiles. There was also a fold-out blueprint of Bison's underground lair on this secret, hidden, fortified island nation that he had. Reminded D'Souza very much of early James Bond, like Dr. No, especially. So this gave D'Souza his blueprint on what he might be able to achieve, because he already knew they were going this direction, at least in their minds. And rather than rehash the game's martial arts tournament, he thought, you know, everybody would find that trite and predictable. Everybody had seen all of the Rocky films, all of the Karate Kid films. I mean, this was just going to be another one of the same. He thought this movie should go a different direction, be an action adventure that could capture the tongue-in-cheek flair of those early Bond films. And he specifically thought that Guile, Major Guile, could be the leader of this ragtag band of international street fighters. 
So D'Souza connected the dots among the game's characters, and he developed a, basically a two-page synopsis just for Pressman. And then when Pressman gave his approval for this direction, D'Souza drafted a complete 15-page outline that he was going to use to pitch to these Japanese executives. When he did so through their translators, the executives felt he had read their minds. Capcom had been busy heavily promoting their Street Fighter G.I. Joes, so this military emphasis and this action hero vibe that D'Souza had come up with made a lot of financial sense. But one thing Capcom was not as keen on in terms of what they heard from his pitch was that D'Souza really only planned parts for about nine of the game's multitudinous characters. D'Souza argued that anything more than seven heroes and maybe two villains like Bison and Sagat That would bog down the narrative and confuse audiences. It would take away from the main story. So to illustrate that point, he challenged the executives to name seven Star Wars heroes or name all seven dwarves from Snow White or name all seven of the wonders of the world. They actually couldn't. They conceded the point he had to make. And within a week, Capcom made an offer to Pressman and D'Souza. Pressman accepted but encouraged Capcom to provide 100% of the funding instead of just half. That way, they can keep control of their property and ensure a Christmas release that would maximize, especially, all of those merchandising opportunities. Tsuchimoto, the Capcom president, he dreamt of getting into the movie business for many, many years, and he agreed, and he became the co-producer. Now, D'Souza's finished script is set in the fictional Southeast Asian country of Shadaloo. Shadaloo, by the way, in this film, the official language, Shadoti, is actually Esperanto. The dictator, General M. Bison, wages this war with his United Nations-like military force called the Allied Nations. The United Nations lawyers forbade the use of their name, by the way. Bison holds several dozen of these Allied Nations workers as hostages for a ransom of $20 billion. And so leading the Allied Nations Special Forces counterattack is United States Colonel, in this film, William F. Guile. Giles, a headstrong fighter that Bison really cannot wait to test his mettle against in hand-to-hand combat. Now, others converge on Bison's stronghold, including television reporter Chun-Li Zhang and underground crime syndicate leader Victor Sagat and a couple of roguish soldiers of fortune named Ken and Ryu. By the way, he's called Ryu in this film because uh, so many people could not remember that he was called Ryu in Japanese. So D'Souza just flat out said, let's just go with Ryu, since that's what everybody seems to be calling him anyway. Now, the original title for D'Souza's tongue-in-cheek adventure was Street Fighter, colon, The Battle for Shadaloo. Obviously, that secondary title did not make it all the way. Now, Capcom conducted market research on all of the actors that the game's fans envisioned could be in a Street Fighter film. The top choices were obvious. Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger. D'Souza said that those choices, they could not afford them with the budget that they were throwing down. So the best affordable option that was on the list was Jean-Claude Van Damme. Van Damme happened to score the highest, especially among teenage fans, even though he had done mostly R-rated films. In fact, all R-rated films up to that point. But he also happened to be the top choice to play the would-be main character for the good guys in the film, Guile. So D'Souza still was skeptical about Van Damme. Van Damme fans, you know, they had watched those R-rated flicks He didn't think that they would come out to see him in kind of a family-oriented PG-13 flick. Also, he had this very thick Belgian-French accent. It was too thick for Guile, this all-American hero. But the execs pushed back. They had only heard Van Damme's voice 
in dubbed in Japanese. They didn't really understand the distinction between the accents. Anyway, they didn't know why it was an impediment. Besides, their research clearly showed the game's fans did not mind. They put him as their choice for Guile. So they talked to Van Damme, who was genuinely interested. Van Damme at that time had been growing tired of just being seen as the karate guy. He wanted to do something more, some more serious work if he could get it. So he felt a high-profile PG-13 film like this could really break him into the mainstream of actors. And he thought, oh, you know, Street Fighter, it already comes with such a huge name. And with him on board, it could be so huge that his name, as well as his face, would be everywhere, he said, even on toilet paper. So he signed for a salary of about $8 million, plus some red carpet accommodations, a presidential suite in Bangkok's Shangri-La Hotel that would be outfitted with his own private gym. Now, for the sporting cast, D'Souza preferred acting ability over martial arts experience because he felt the game's fighting styles, they weren't really real martial arts moves anyway, so they would have to fake it, so might as well get some agile, good-quality thespians. He picked Raul Julia to play M. Bison, and that was primarily to provide a formidable counterbalance to Van Damme. Unfortunately, by signing both Van Damme and Raul Julia, this left very little money for other name actors on board, and it really scuttled the plans to fly the cast to Australia in advance for fight training, Australia being one of the places they were going to shoot the film. D'Souza decided, since they didn't have that advanced training for most of the cast, that he would front load in the shoot dialogue scenes with Raul Julia first, and that way the actors could be on the side on location training for the fight scenes to come later. However, one wrench got thrown in the works. Raul Julia, when he arrived at the shoot, he was like half of what they were expecting. He was emaciated. He was totally gaunt. Raul Julia had gotten food poisoning after eating sushi in Mexico while he was shooting the HBO movie called The Burning Season. And the severity of the food poisoning was likely made even worse by the fact that he had had surgery back in January of 1994, just a few months before, for stomach cancer. Stomach cancer that he had been keeping private from almost everybody for about three years. He'd lost, in the last couple of months, 45 pounds, but claimed that he had received a clean bill of health by his doctor to do the film. Unfortunately, the bison costume that he had been measured for about three months prior was hanging way too loose. The padding that they tried to stuff in there did not help at all. So D'Souza had to reverse his original plans by giving Raul Julia time to recover with a steady diet of bodybuilding shakes and donuts while he did his best to try to shoot some of those other dialogue scenes with other characters and fight sequences with actors who had really by this point received very little training. D'Souza for other casting choices discovered that Capcom was very provincial in the casting especially of the game's Asian characters. Capcom felt only Japanese actors would do. So after D'Souza's top choices were repeatedly shot down by Capcom for not being Japanese, he ordered the casting directors to remove the surnames from all of the photos, the publicity photos and publicity material for the Asian Americans who were auditioning for the roles. D'Souza wanted for Ryu, Hong Kong-born American actor Byron Mann. But Tsujimoto, he groveled after finding out that man was Hong Kong-born, and he really started pressing for this Japanese actor called Kenya Sawada instead. D'Souza said Sawada's English and his acting skills were way too limited. They were too poor to handle all of the comedic dialogue that he had planned for Ryu and Ken. 
Tsuchimoto then backed off. He rationalized, in his mind at least, that man was handsome enough to pass as Japanese, so he gave the okay. But he still wanted Sawada in the film somewhere. He suggested maybe he could play Fei Long. But D'Souza thought that uh, Fei Long, there was just something about that character that didn't work for him, a, a Bruce Lee clone, essentially, that would be just too distracting at this point. So he created a brand new character, kind of a cameo, really, for Sawada called Captain Sawada. Now, Damien Chapa, he had the prior action movie experience and the comic report with Byron Mann to play Ken. Joan Chen, she actually was a, an early, very early casting for Chun-Li, but she was later replaced by Ming-Na Wen. Ming, uh, a former trained gymnast, she convinced D'Souza that she actually could play very tough, very aggressive fighter by performing some pretty impressive martial arts kicks in his office. And she also became the onset champ at the arcade game. She kicked everyone's butts. And her preferred character was, of course, Chun-Li. But she also happened to kick their butts in front of the camera. She was, among all of the actors, the one who did most of her own stunt work. She really thought all the other men were really wussies deep down, especially the ones that were posturing as the most macho. They were really the most wimpy. Universal handled the U.S. distribution while Columbia handled international because Van Damme had commitments to both studios. The production was limited to six months. That's roughly half the time of a typical big-budget release like this. But the, the budget D'Souza found was not going to be enough. But each time he asked for more money, Capcom requested, yeah, maybe you could add one or two more characters. So he would have to do revisions, and he would inject more and more characters, those characters he didn't even want in the film. Also, financiers were pressuring D'Souza to cast more Australian actors to try to qualify this as an Aussie production for tax shelter purposes. Just by happenstance, two weeks prior to the shoot, D'Souza needed a suitable actress to play British intelligence officer Lieutenant Kami, which is another role that the Japanese really wanted to get stuffed into the film. Fortuitously, though, on the way to Australia to scout locations, he saw Kylie Minogue on the cover of this magazine called Who, which is like their version of People magazine, the 30 most beautiful people issue with Minogue on the cover. So D'Souza decided he was going to screen some samples of her prior acting work. And after that, he agreed. This was Cammy. He offered Minogue the role without any auditions or screen tests. Minogue was hesitant about doing an action flick like this, but she accepted when she discovered that the game was incredibly popular among teenagers, especially in America, where she'd only had minor success as a pop star. So she rearranged her recording schedule as well as her promotional tour for her upcoming album, Kyla Minogue, to appear in her first American Hollywood film. The shooting schedule was set for six weeks in Thailand, where everything was pretty inexpensive. They received a lot of kickbacks from filming in Thailand, as well as a lot of gorgeous vistas that were available to them for practically nothing. They were going to follow that up with four weeks in Australia. However, during pre-production in Australia, this became an issue because members of the Stunt Performers Union stopped working over a pay dispute because... In the Australian film industry, at least of the time, actors and stunt people received higher rates to do projects that were done outside of the country. And this happened to be a Japanese-slash-American production, and there were several weeks of filming in Thailand. But the producers were claiming Street Fighter as an Australian production and were trying to stiff the people who were working there from their bonus pay. So this dispute ended up getting very messy. Eventually, it was settled, although there was some turbulence still along the way. Now, Ming-Na... Grandel Bush, who was playing Balrog, and Jay Tavare, who was playing Vega. They trained with karate champ Benny the Jet Urquidez at his gym in Van Nuys. 
He put them on a high fiber diet and a lot of weight training. And then once in Thailand, Urquidis came over and trained a lot of the other actors, two at a time, except for Van Damme, who had his own trainer. And Raul Julia trained with Urquidis, but he had to do it solo because of his condition. So Julia, he persevered the hardship of this shoot, even though he wasn't feeling very well, out of love for his sons, who he had come to find out after accepting the role. They were massive fans of the game. They were beyond ecstatic that their dad was going to be playing M. Bison in a Street Fighter film. His sons came with his wife to the location, and in addition to Julia modeling his performance on Benito Mussolini primarily, as well as Shakespeare's Richard III, Julia also consulted with his kids every day on how he was going to portray Bison that day. And they would give him a lot of very valuable feedback. But unfortunately, Raul Julia would never really know if his sons loved his performance as Bison. On the evening of October 16th, 1994, two months before the release of Street Fighter, Julia experienced severe stomach pain. He was rushed to the hospital, and while there, he soon suffered a stroke a few hours later that caused a brain hemorrhage that put him, within a few days, into a coma on October 20th, and then he died on October 24th at the age of 54. Thailand's facilities proved insufficiently shoddy. They quickly fell severely behind schedule on the shoot, Between the heat, the humidity, the dysentery, the actors lost a lot of weight rather than bulking up. And with recent student protests and tensions with Burma in Thailand, the government there was hesitant to allow all of these costumed soldiers out on public streets. So, And they also didn't want military vehicles on public roads or any kind of helicopters flying overhead that might be confused by the public as some sort of military coup. So they forced personnel to have to move around using high-speed boats in the middle of the night. That left a lot of the cast and crew drenched at the end of that movement, which really angered Van Damme especially. And Thailand did help out a little bit by supplying military equipment as well as vehicles at specified locations for the film's use. Now, the extras playing soldiers consisted of Thai students, as well as a lot of tourists that happened to be there from other countries. The language barrier, though, that incurred prolonged delays. The translators had to take time to instruct all of these various nationalities on what was required before each shot. So they eventually resorted to numbered cue cards to try to save time. A cue card reading the numeral one, that meant for the crowd to act happy, two to act sad, three to act scared, and four to cheer, and five just meant get in your boat. D'Souza sometimes found it also challenging to direct people who knew English, Australian actors. D'Souza, one day, he accused former heavyweight boxer Joe Bugner, who plays a a bison henchman, the torturer in this film, of having taken perhaps too many blows to the head as as a boxer after he was slurring his words and stumbling around while they were performing for a scene. The actor retorted, though. D'Souza told him, act pissed during the scene. Now, in America, pissed means getting angry. But... In Australia, it means drunk. So D'Souza, he could no longer be upset about this. He erupted in laughter at this miscommunication. Now, while Van Damme brought a lot of publicity to Street Fighter, his drug binges, his hedonistic pursuits, soon became a major headache for D'Souza. Sometimes Van Damme would travel to Hong Kong. He would spend all night partying. He wouldn't even return in time. He would miss his flights. He would sometimes overindulge on booze and drugs, and he wouldn't feel nearly well enough to perform in the morning. 
So the insurance company catching wind of this, they insisted that the production hire somebody to wrangle Van Damme away from all trouble. However, that backfired because the person, he did more enabling than enforcing. In fact, Van Damme was the one who was corrupting the enforcer. Van Damme's frequent unavailability meant inventing new scenes on the spot for all of these other actors waiting around for him to do something. So without rehearsals, they really couldn't be fight scenes. And that taxed D'Souza's time having to write dialogue for scenes that, in the end, probably weren't even going to be good enough to use. And Van Damme's distractions actually continued beyond just his drugs and partying. Despite being just a few months into his fourth marriage and with a child on the way, Van Damme had an affair with Kylie Minogue after he was showing her around Bangkok. His Bangkok. He was very familiar with the area. Minogue has subsequently remarked since... Van Damme brought this public around 2012 that uh, the affair is kind of an overstatement for what happened between them. And while Street Fighter it seemed a good career move for her at the time, it now makes her cringe for many reasons. Now, D'Souza chose to move production to Australia sooner, a few days sooner than he had intended, because he was hoping to catch up with the production by dividing filming into two separate units, one to handle a lot of the dialogue scenes and the other to handle the fighting. So meanwhile, Ukides, he happened to leave the production and he left the rest to fight choreographer Charlie Picherny. Now, Picherny, once he found out what state the actors were in, he was incensed that they were so ill-prepared. Ukides... He had no familiarity with the game. He didn't know that all of the characters were supposed to have completely unique fighting styles because he trained the actors identically. And that left Picherny scrambling to try to train these actors on distinct signature moves right before shooting each scene. Uh, Convinced that D'Souza was the problem, he was in over his head. Picherny took over directing those fight sequences completely, especially the climactic battle between Guile and Bison. Paterni threatened to walk if D'Souza tried to intervene with that process. He eventually earned a second unit director credit for his effort to try to salvage the picture. Now, despite their best effort to catch up in Australia, they ran out of time. 20 pages of the script were still left unshot. So back in the United States, D'Souza did what he could, trying to edit everything that they had together to make some logical sense. And he found that in addition to a few story gaps, that the fight sequences in particular felt very lifeless. They lacked all of those trademark moves that he was hoping for from the game's characters. So D'Souza opted to do some reshoots to try to fill those narrative gaps as well as redo the climactic showdown, especially between Ryu and Ken versus Sagat and Vega. So sets were recreated in Vancouver for a one-week pickup shoot about a month later. Unfortunately, all of this additional fighting that he had shot proved too intense for the MPAA rating board. They bestowed Street Fighter an R rating. D'Souza had no choice because they had deals to sell merchandise, to sell toys to kids, and they weren't going to be able to advertise to them if this was an R-rated film on television or in various publications. So he had no choice but to gut a lot of the best action moments he felt, especially this expensive reshoot that ends with Vega dying after landing on his own claw weapon. We find something happens in the film, but it's not very clear what, because he had to cut so much of it to try to get it down to a PG-13. He cut so much, by the way, D'Souza claims that they gave him a G rating. I don't think that that's accurate. He's probably misremembering. It was more likely that they gave him a PG, but he wanted a PG-13 because he felt that Van Damme's fans would would definitely not want to see a PG film. So he added one salty line of dialogue he dubbed in from Van Damme. Four years of ROTC for this to ensure the desired PG-13 rating. 
Now, also helping to promote the film was a Priority Records soundtrack that included a lot of original rap music featuring major acts like Ice Cube and LL Cool J, Nas, The Fireside, and Public Enemy. But the main single from the soundtrack was a, a, a rap duet between MC Hammer, then he was just called Hammer, I was trying to get a little more street at that time, and sports star Deion Sanders called Straight to My Feet. John claude Van Damme also happens to appear in the music video. It's worth watching. It's kind of funny in its own way. Now, sensing that uh, this film would be ill-received, Universal did not make Street Fighter available to American critics for early screenings. And it ended up landing a very disappointing third place for that long Christmas weekend in 1994, behind Dumb and Dumber in its second week and The Santa Claus in its seventh week. It plummeted out of the top 15 by week four, earning a disappointing $33 million in the United States. But luckily, it turned a profit. It succeeded internationally in several markets, and that pushed its worldwide gross to $100 million off of that budget of 35 to 40 million. Now, as far as what I think about Street Fighter, I think despite D'Souza's screenwriting prowess, I mean, he is obviously a very talented writer and a producer and filmmaker in his own way. He just was too overwhelmed here by all of the production problems and all of the location shooting and the personalities, the egos, Van Damme and whatnot, as the director, as a first-time director, really, and that forced too many on-the-spot revisions, too many sacrifices to try to make a worthwhile story with all of these severe time restraints. I mean, he just did not have the kind of gravitas to be able to pull this off, and that results in a very shoddy plot, very terrible characterizations, and it has earned a very poor reputation among movie and game lovers alike. Now, fans of video games resoundingly rejected this at the time. It changes so many aspects of the characters from the game. They just didn't recognize whatever this was on the screen as Street Fighter. Inexplicably, all of these characters, even though they're from all over the world, they speak English. Some of their backgrounds have changed. I mean, Chun-Li is a flashy news reporter. Who saw that Balrog as her cameraman? I mean, it's kind of ridiculous if you know the game. And several of the most popular characters seem to cede time to ones that I don't think a lot of people really like. Also, these characters in the game, they're fierce, they're imposing, but their big screen counterparts are often very silly and comical. I don't think Street Fighter is worth watching unless you're a nostalgist. If you watched this as a kid, you probably loved it because it was Street Fighter and you've probably carried that feeling of nostalgia for it for many, many, many years. So there is an audience for this. I think it's specifically for kids who watch this and maybe others who really just love very campy adventure films in general. I mean, if you're not expecting anything like Oscar worthy, although many people consider Raul Julia's performance in here and actually genuinely good highlight, but it just does not live up to its title. It doesn't even give us proper street fights in this film. I think if you love the game or trashy action flicks, maybe it's going to entertain you. If you are just resolved that it's not going to be a good movie and have no expectations other than that. I think for most others, though, it's probably more fun to play the game for 90 minutes. You know, that's really just a better use of your time and money, even if you were paying in bison dollars. And that's why I can only give Street Fighter, despite that campy quality that makes me kind of like it despite its awfulness, two stars out of four. Two stars on my scale means that it's lacking something vital that would keep it from being something I could recommend to most people, and that which it's lacking here obviously is a good screenplay, even though they got a great screenwriter on board. It just falls short 
And I think the problem is all of the last minute changes, all of the pressure on Capcom to change all the directions, the fact that he was not able to shoot scenes that he had wanted to, the fight scenes that he had to move around, and then, of course, Raul Julia's health problems that completely overwhelmed him as a director. And that's why, ultimately, despite D'Souza being the screenwriter, his being a director sank the film into becoming a two-star feature. But if you have your own thoughts on Street Fighter that you want to impart, if you have your own take on this, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website, quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Before I go, I do want to mention that uh, there is a post-credits scene that was shot for this film featuring Bison's arm bursting through the rubble after his headquarters was destroyed. The computer kind of brings him back to life to try for world domination again, presumably in a sequel, but it was removed from the theatrical showing because it was deemed in poor taste after Julia's death. It just didn't seem right to kind of resurrect him at the end of this film. But that scene is reinstated on some of the newer home video releases. If you happen to have it and didn't know it was there, you might go ahead and watch it there. There was a Street Fighter, the movie tie-in arcade game that features digitized likenesses of these characters and the actors and their stunt doubles collaborated for getting their faces scanned and some of their moves digitized for the game. It looks a little like the Mortal Kombat games, but with a lot of the Street Fighter moves and uh, an unrelated home console game, Street Fighter the movie, was also released. There was no theatrical sequel that emerged, despite the fact that it actually did earn money internationally anyway, but there was a TV cartoon that did appear in 1995 on TV called Street Fighter the Animated Series, and it lasted for two seasons, uh, 26 episodes overall. There were also some unrelated Street Fighter reboot attempts, 2009 Street Fighter The Legend of Chun-Li, that is considered perhaps even worse <laughs> as a film than this one. And then there was a more highly regarded 2014 web and TV series called Street Fighter Assassin's Fist. I guess you could probably go there if you want to see it done with a little bit more respectability. I can't vouch for it, I haven't seen it, but uh, it does exist there. But Street Fighter, I'm sure it will come back at some point or another. And if it ties in with the films of the 1990s, I will cover it here on To the 90s and Beyond. Now, speaking of Street Fighter tie-ins, there were other films that were made based on the Street Fighter video games. In fact, I'm going to be talking about one on the next episode. The film I'm going to be talking about actually came out before Street Fighter came out in theaters in 1994. It came out in Japan in August of 1994, and it did very well there. Street Fighter II, the animated movie. It was not released officially into the United States until January of 1996, but I will cover it here on the next episode. It does exist on Blu-ray and whatnot, and I think you might be able to stream it on Amazon if you're, at least in the United States, maybe other countries as well. Street Fighter II, the animated movie from 1994 on the next episode. Until next time, thank you so much for taking this trip with me to the 90s and beyond.